Welcome to the UDIA Queensland's Development Drum podcast, where we learn from members about the property sector and at the same time get to know your industry colleagues a little bit better. Hi, my name is Chelsea, and today we're interviewing Megan Barron. My guest today is a formidable woman, a property marketing expert, leading one of the biggest urban renewal projects happening in Brisbane at the moment. The West Village Project by Sekisui House Australia is turning the old Peter's Ice Creamery site in West End into a hive of activity with residential, commercial and retail a stone's throw from the Brisbane CBD. The project will deliver 1,200 plus apartments, over seven buildings and approximately 6,500 square metres of public spaces. It's a massive undertaking and Megan Barron is the Project Executive Director, Sales, Marketing and Public Relations for the development. Her role encompasses sales, marketing, place creation, sustainability and community, customer care and management rights for the $1 billion integrated heritage retail and residential precinct. I'm exhausted just thinking about how big a role you're playing in the delivery of this new global neighbourhood. A deep thanks for carving out some time out of your diary share an insight into your world on the UDIA's Development Drum podcast. Welcome, Megan. Thank you. So the purpose of this podcast, as you know, is to get to know our industry colleagues a little bit better and to learn how you spend your days and kind of what makes you get out of bed in the morning and want to be part of Queensland's property industry. So if you could share with us what a typical day looks like for you. Well, firstly, I absolutely love working in property development and have a real passion for that. So that makes it very easy for me to get out of bed in the mornings and come to work. And I, every day, pinch myself thinking how lucky I am to be working on a living heritage village project 800 metres from the CBD. That's a, a once, I think, in a career opportunity. So it's been wonderful to be part of that and wonderful to be part of that team. I typically do get out of bed between 4.30 and 5.30 in the mornings, um, regardless of whether it's winter or summer. Our whole family um, are actually early risers. And I like to do an hour of bar or Pilates every morning before I start my day. Typically, I'm dropping a few children up to school before seven o'clock. We do that nearly every day. So for example, this morning we dropped one up at six o'clock and then I dropped another one up at seven. So I was up and out of bed. I had done an hour of Pilates from five to six at home, dropped one child, then came back, dropped another child and then into work at 8.30. It's a big day and I haven't (laughs) even woken up and had breakfast yet. So you're onto it. So when you get to the office, are you typically, you know, changing your desk and your phone or are you moving around the precinct and meeting with team members? Yeah. So I've got roughly five, five different sets of teams and my role is very operational and very customer facing. So our real living property management teams and our sales teams and marketing teams are all very much outwardly facing. So I do typically walk around. I'm often, we have three different sales sites. We've got retail happening. We've got commercial happening. We've got parklands being upgraded. And I'm across three or four different offices within the site. I would easily walk 10 kilometres a day just in and around. Sometimes I'm helping our sales staff out. Sometimes I'm escorting VIPs on site. Sometimes I'm out talking to our marketing team about how they're going to run events. I don't like to be sitting down behind a desk for long periods of time. I do like to be out and about and and being involved 
in the project. So I do know nearly every one of our 850 residents on site and their dogs. And there's a lot of dogs on site as well. But part of my role is to be that interface between our outward market and the project. I'm glad you mentioned Real Living. I did want to talk to you about that. Uh, That was your idea, wasn't it? Can you tell us more? So Sekisui House in Japan is the largest publicly listed real estate company and they have a very strong customer care program and a very strong property management program. In Japan, they call their property managers maesters. So it's very Game of Thrones, but it's a very, very service-orientated style of property management. And they do separate their property management into body corporate management and then into rental and tenant management. What my role, one of my roles in Australia was to set up the property management division and to actually institute a a very Japanese-style service-orientated customer care program. And we always like to say that customer care is not about tick a box, you know, send them out a letter um, and a phone call. It's about attitude. It's about having a lovely, warm, friendly people on site who are helping you live in your environment. I think property management in Australia is about to undergo a real change, particularly as we see more people living in apartments rather than just renting or buying an investment apartment. I can see that there's such a change happening with that now. And on site, more than half the people, um, I think it's about 68% of our dwellers on site or our residents are actually owner-occupiers and they're very invested in their home and their environment and they call it our village. <laughs> and that can be both a positive and also a challenge because it's also a live construction site. Yeah, that would be difficult. I've noticed a, a trend towards a lot of developers these days keeping the management rights mm. in-house mm. and potentially mm. have even sold them and then bought mm. them back again. Mm. Do you think that that's to do with brand and making sure you own the complete experience, not just from the point of handover but through to how you continue to live in that building as a resident? Look, I think there are three reasons why a lot of developers are doing that. I think um, there is the legacy issue in that you want to be able to control the product that you're building because typically for a lot of developers, it's a three-year cycle from when you buy a site to when you deliver it. And your calling card is your previous sites and how they perform, whether you're living there or whether it's an investment for you. So I think legacy and making sure that your calling card still looks good and still operates is very important. I think secondly, there is that customer care, I think, because we're now starting to see such a changeover between people actually wanting to live in apartments and wanting to live in an inner urban areas. Being able to control that experience and offer them a higher level of service is part of the whole premium of buying from a particular brand. So it's important for brand reputation. But I think also, thirdly, In Queensland particularly, management rights um, can be locked in typically for 25 years. So as an asset class, they're very valuable and you can generally get a a minimum 5% yield from that. So you are seeing a lot of developers who are looking at um, the latent income stream that that provides and also the value that that asset provides in an industry where at the moment the cash rate's down below 1%. So when you think about the fact that you can generally secure a reasonable 5% yield moving forward. That's important as well. So I think it's those three issues as to why management rights are now becoming very much a a commodity that most big developers are looking at retaining. As a director, you mentioned Sekisui Houses from Japan. As a director in an international company, 
how much or what kind of complexity does that add to your role? Oh, (laughs) there is always a um, cultural, I guess, construct that you have to navigate when you're dealing with particularly an owner who is from a offshore company. Sekisu is actually in America, England, Japan, China, Singapore, and and it has $18 billion in product in Australia. But it is um, a very old and venerable company in Japan, and it has an exceptionally high level of, of reputation in Japan. So it doesn't have that same level, I think, of recognition in Australia that it automatically does in Japan. And the Japanese culture is incredibly different to the Australian culture. We're a lot more relaxed and I think we probably have more of a, okay, you know, we're going to do something here. It's 85% research, but there's 15% or 20% that we're going to throw our heart over the edge and and take a risk. Japanese as a culture don't take risks. So they're always very careful in terms of what they do. So I think there's a lot of really lovely uh, positives that we've been able to take from our Japanese heritage, particularly their attention to detail, their level of integrity, and their service orientation. I think we have um, worked very hard to educate them then on that more relaxed Australian culture. So there's always a happy medium that that you eventually get to when you're merging two cultures like that. I think you'd probably agree development, business and marketing as a landscape has changed a lot over the last few decades. What do you think some of the biggest changes have been for the property industry, particular to Queensland? When I started in property development in the in the early 2000s, it was very much about yield, size, price. I still remember getting phone calls to come down to the sales office and pick up a deposit, a $45,000 deposit in a brown paper bag and walk it up to St. George (laughs) Bank um, and deposit it. And I think back in those days, people had the same decision-making turnaround process that you would have for buying a car nowadays. So it was a quite a different market back then. It was very much about the basics. I think when you sort of fast track it to the 2020s, which is a, a long time, There is a lot more intangibles um, that go towards creating a product and marketing a product. So those intangible values of community and heritage and the living environment is as important now but would not have actually had any sort of currency back in the early 2000s. So I think the way people live now is a lot more important than it was in the early 2000s. And I can see that marketing has very much become a lot more focused on society and lifestyle than it was back then. Certainly, it seems to be a much more emotional decision, despite the fact people try and have a checklist. I think a lot of the time people walk in and go, this is the one. It's felt with the heart rather than the head. Would you agree? And potentially the price is post-rationalised because that's just the one they want? No, I think... Purchasing property has always been quite an emotional decision because it's always been, property is by, compared to a lot of other commodity areas, is quite an expensive purchase. So I think it's always a much higher proportion of your savings, your income or the loan that you're seeking to purchase it. I think it's always been an emotional decision. I think the difference between the early 2000s and now is the rise of social and digital media and the globalisation of the world. There's so much more information that is available now and people are a lot more educated about their purchases 
and they have a lot more choice. So back in the early 2000s, there wasn't a lot of choice if you wanted to buy an investment apartment or if you even wanted to buy a new house off the plan. There was not the choices that you had then, nor the easy access to information that you have now. And along with that has been the amount of advisors that you have now involved in the decision-making process. Back in those early days, you would basically go to the bank and you may see your accountant, but you certainly wouldn't have a broker, you certainly wouldn't have a financial planner, and it would be only either your accountant or your bank manager that you would discuss your purchase with. We now find that there's a lot of secondary family that gets involved in, <laughs> in decision-making processes. <laughs> yep. Yep. So you you typically would find that the decision-making process now, there is an extended family members that are involved, as well as two to three key advisors that help you run your portfolio. I'd like to talk about the big P word, the pandemic. Uh, you lead a large team. How did you adapt your work practices when we were in the midst of 2020 yeah. and being stuck at home? Yeah, yeah. So we have... Um, a large component of working parents and um, a lot of those working parents obviously were homeschooling as well as working. So the very first day that um, the big P happened, um, we got the whole team in um, and we had a list of what needed to happen um, to keep leads coming in, to keep sales coming in, to keep our place marketing going. And we actually saw this as a real opportunity, which was quite interesting that, um, you know, on the very first day, the team were talking about opportunity. And I think that was a really fabulous outcome for us. So we all had um, basically, by the end of that day, a list of tasks that that and goals that we had to achieve. And we agreed that we would literally on a monthly, oh, sorry, on a weekly basis, start reporting back um, as to how what we had achieved and how we had achieved it. It became very evident very quickly that um, a number of staff were really struggling with homeschooling and achieving their KPIs that we had set for them during that period. So what we did is we started a roster system and we broke our teams into two and um, we, we would roster within each separate team half our staff one in the morning and the other half in the afternoon. And what that allowed our team members to do at home was to basically homeschool and get the homeschooling out of the way either in the morning or the afternoon. And it then freed them up both mentally and physically to concentrate on their work in the afternoons. We found that worked really, really well. On Wednesdays, I used to send out a Wellness Wednesday funny email, which was, um, and I, I encouraged all of our staff to send in photos. So the very first day, we actually, staff took photos of their home offices. And some of their home offices were in very funny locations. Some of them were in bedrooms and they'd have, you know, two dogs sitting on the chair beside them or they'd have, you know, a baby on their lap while they were doing some work. But it was a really nice way of humanising the environment, but also bringing people together. We'd send out jokes and we had, um, you know, all sorts of playlists and things like that. But that was just to keep people saying, hey, look, it's all okay. We're here for you. And we were trying to at least lighten the atmosphere a little bit. I always sent out a meditation um, link. And um, I always send out, a, you know, if you want to read more about it or you need any help, there was always a link to some sort of information or something that someone else was doing to make life easier. Do you think it got uh, work and life in 2020 became a bit more intertwined? Essentially, you were forced to invite work into your spare bedroom or to your kitchen table. Do you think your team got closer as a result of the experience? 
I think the team leaned on each other a lot more emotionally than they probably had in the past. And I think, yes, work and home life did just very necessarily become a lot more intertwined. And I think it also, uh, for us, it actually improved our productivity, if you can believe it, because the team was so keen to show that they could continue to be productive, that they could improve on what they were doing, even though they were working from home, even though this was happening. It was almost like we'd set a challenge for them and they were rising to that challenge. And, you know, there were some tough times. Some, Some people, you know, one of our team members has four at home and that was tough. But on a whole, we actually extended our digital reach. We did 100 sales. We, we signed nine, nine leases and we completely turned around our entire place program into an online platform. And then on top of that, we instituted a COVID resilience program for our on-site residents because at that stage, there was 850 on-site residents in lockdown while we continued to build the village. Mm. And while they would have mostly have gone to work and been able to get in and out, they couldn't escape the noise um, at that time. And there was a lot of focus on that. So we had to work out very quickly, what were we going to do for that, for our residents and for our village community to help them through COVID as well? And, and what were some of the things that you ended up doing to help them through? So um, we very quickly identified we do a creative kids program every day on site. Um, we turned that into an online program. So every day in the morning you could tune in and we had a basically a kids activity program. We also did the same for dogs because we very quickly identified that a lot of people are at home with their dogs and these dogs are a, not used to having people home all day, but are also not used to being in lockdown and, and only being allowed out for you know 10 minutes at a time. So we actually had a um, dog behavioural specialist do a series of online videos for us. All of our activities that we would have done with beautiful Queensland Opera, um, where we would have had opera in our common, we actually turned into an online program. Then when we could sort of start feeling that it was just that next level, that our residents were going the next level and getting frustrated, we actually brought on musicians on site and we placed single musicians on either side of our three buildings. So we had six individual musicians and we had a twilight musical program. So we sent out to all of our residents, come out on your balconies, bring a glass of wine, bring some cheese and listen to some live music. And that, you could almost feel the building decompress. And we did that a couple of times and that was just a way of actually helping um, our residents to, f- to have a little bit of normalcy, to have a little bit of entertainment. We could see people, you know, reaching over across balconies <laughs> and saying hello to people. It was a connection. And, you know, communities want to be connected. And I think people forget about that. You know, it's not enough to be able to call. It's enough to Zoom. People do want to see other people. That physical connection is very important. It sounds like you've done an amazing job in what was a a time when many people were kind of feeling their way. There's no doubt that 2020 was a big year and there were a lot of predictions about how the market would go. Things are a little bit different, I think, to what people expected. What do you think will happen over the next 12 months in 2021? Oh my gosh, I am so excited about this property market. I think we're going to come into a property market that we have not seen for a really long time in Queensland. I think we're on the verge of a renaissance. You know, we have 
over $20 billion worth of infrastructure about to come into operation or is under construction from the second runway through to Cross River Rail starting, through to Green Bridges, through to Brisbane Live, you know, the Queensland Ballet headquarters. There is um, a whole gauntlet of infrastructure that has been bubbling away and is going to start opening up in the next couple of years. And I think that on top of the fact that Queensland has the highest level of interstate migration, and why shouldn't it? Because it's a great place to live and it's a very cost-effective place to live. The interstate migration with the infrastructure that's opening up, and then I think we're seeing this demographic shift as well between that baby boomer market with the discretionary spend who do want to move for lifestyle reasons. Those three or four components are all coming together. And I think we're very lucky that Queensland has has really stood the test of time with COVID, that we have been very successful with, our government's been very successful with its whole COVID program. I think that has been amazing for us. But even with COVID aside, Brisbane really is and was poised to be on a cusp of, I think, one of our best markets that we've had in a really long time. Well, I really do hope you're correct. (laughs) I appreciate the time you've given us today out of your schedule and uh, thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the UDA Queensland's Development Drum podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. And if you want to hear more episodes, visit udiaqld.com.au forward slash podcasts. Send us your comments and questions via marketing at udiaqld.com.au. Remember to subscribe, rate and review this show on your favourite podcast app. We'll be releasing a new episode every month, so we look forward to having you back.